one generation or two or more uh, back up our family tree. We don't plow the fields and scatter. We haven't spent the last weeks bringing the harvest home. So all of that can make it a little bit difficult to, to think deeply and well about the harvest. But look, don't let's give up hope just yet. God has things to say to us about the harvest in our lives, and he offers us help to think about how we uh, should uh, think of our harvest. I'm conscious that we might have guests this morning, so a very quick recap to show you how we're uh, thinking about the harvest this morning and where it fits in to a journey that we're on as a church family here these days. We're in this book of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy, from which Clara read a moment ago. Deuteronomy is really the record of a, a sermon or a, a series of sermons that Moses, the leader of the people of Israel, preached before they entered the promised land, just before he died. And we have said so far that Moses is calling God's people to choose life. So far in the six chapters, we've seen Moses call the people to choose your future, a better one than your parents. Choose your calling, and that is to show a watching world how great your God is. To choose freedom, even God's laws, we see in this book that has so many laws, they're given to recently liberated slaves to help them stay free. Last week, in chapter 6, we saw Moses invite the people to choose love. God, through Moses, is calling the people to love him with all that they have and all that they are. It's not law keepers in the end that God wants. It's lovers. I've heard a few people say that they found studying Deuteronomy to be really helpful for their lights going on for people. I've heard people saying, oh, I, I finally understand what the Ten Commandments are about. I finally am beginning to see what God's law might always have been intended to be. It's not there to save us, but it's for saved people. There's no better freedom than to learn to walk in God's will and God's ways. It's one thing on, uh, to, to realize that, to have a, a bit of a light bulb moment in our heads. It's a, a moment to hear Moses uh, say that. But it's another thing to, to really start to believe this and to start to live this way from our hearts, to find that this is our experience, to really believe that walking in God's ways, doing what he calls us to do, is the way to life. So Moses, tell us more about that. What do you mean when you say that obeying God's law brings life? You're telling us to walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper. How does that work? Can you give us some examples? Well, yes, Moses would say the whole book, all these laws are going to be examples of how walking in God's ways leads us into life. Well, well, Moses, what about the harvest? We're, we're trying to give thanks to God for the harvest. We're trying to, to, to think well about the harvest that we receive in our lives. Can you help us with that? Well, that's where our passage this morning helps us. Just to explain, we're jumping out of order. We've been moving through the book pretty 
pretty much in a straight line uh, into chapter 6. By the way, if you're reading along, do read chapter 6 again for next week. All right, chapter 6 for next week. But this week, to, to reflect the harvest, we've jumped in a, a little bit into some of the laws that are, that are in the book. Page 202. If we look at this passage, we're going to see that God's invitation to these people whom he's invited to choose life is to choose generosity. We're going to notice three things, God's call to generosity, Jesus' life of generosity, and then we're going to think about how we might choose generosity. First of all, God's call to generosity. Look at the passage again beginning at verse 19. When you're harvesting your field and you overlook a sheath, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. This passage, uh, I should tell you, isn't a one-off. Remember, in Deuteronomy, Moses is re-preaching what he's previously brought the people so if you flick back, for example, to Leviticus 19, verse 9, page 121, you'll find a very similar kind of law there. Leviticus 19, 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard or pick up the grapes uh, a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Okay, we need to slow down for a second and introduce a, a principle here that will develop a little bit over the incoming weeks as we read together the, the laws in Deuteronomy. Whenever we can't quite get the point of a law at first reading, if, if the idea that it's talking about is too remote from our everyday experience, then what we do is we try to discern its underlying principle. So we're not farmers, we're not spending our days harvesting, but even then, as soon as you start to think about it, the underlying principle here is not, not hard to spot. Do you see what's going on in these harvest passages? God is telling his people, don't pursue complete economic efficiency in order to maximize your own wealth. Be willing to forgo some profit yourself so that you might be a blessing to those who have less than you do. That'll mean life for you and life for the community. Choose generosity. One of the things that we're going to notice in this book of Deuteronomy is that it, it serves as a summary of everything that goes before and it's also a bit of a springboard into everything that follows. So a, a couple of weeks ago, we went backwards from Deuteronomy into the book of Exodus, and we stood on the plains uh, before Mount Sinai. Today, to get a handle on this part of Deuteronomy, I want us to springboard from Deuteronomy into the, the book of Ruth. 
and go to the village of Bethlehem. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ruth, page 267. 267. And while you're flicking that up, let me remind you of the story. This story takes place probably a few hundred years after Moses preaches his Deuteronomy sermon. The people have entered the promised land, but there's a famine now in Israel. So Naomi and her husband and her two sons leave Bethlehem for the land of Moab in search of food. Tragically, both her husband and her two sons die. And after some time, Naomi decides to return to her home in Israel. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, comes back with her. Now, let's go to the economics of this story. These two women are destitute. They've no land, no income, and no prospect of generating any income. In the opening verses of chapter 2, we read about a plan that they come up with. Ruth is going to go gleaning, picking up the leftovers after the harvesters uh, who have passed. She ends up gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz is, is a man of Israel. He's a, he's a man of the people of God. Boaz has received, as it's been handed down to him, Deuteronomy. The passage we read, Boaz knows. He knows the call of God's law to take care of widows, to take care of the poor, and to take care of foreigners. Look at what Boaz does. When he sees this migrant worker in his field, he makes inquiries about who she is. Chapter 2, verse 8. He speaks to her. He says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Why does he say that? Because he doesn't want her to fall prey to unscrupulous men in other fields. Run your eye down to verse 15. We're told what happens after a lunch break. As Ruth got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Do you see what Boaz is doing? He's keeping God's law. He's looking out for the widow, Naomi. He's looking out for the foreign daughter-in-law, Ruth. He's looking out for the poor because that's what they both are. And he's doing it in the, the grain of his everyday life. He makes sure that he doesn't glean to the edge of his field. He tells his harvesters not to go back for the sheaves they've forgotten. Boaz is refusing to pursue complete economic efficiency in order to maximize his own wealth. He's willing to forgo some of his own profit so that those who have much less than him can have more. He's obeying God's law. And as a result, he's finding life, I think. And so are the people around him in Bethlehem. Imagine for a moment what it feels like to be Ruth. I'm a foreigner. Probably don't speak the language. 
have ended up in small town Israel. Not every community is good at welcoming foreigners, particularly if they have no means to look after themselves. They say that the measure of a community is how it cares for its most vulnerable members. Well, in this story, we get an insight. We get the measure of the people of God in Bethlehem, particularly Boaz, a man obeying God's law. Ruth must have been blown away. Blown away by what she experienced in Bethlehem. Instead of small town, small mindedness, she found a big hearted welcome. Instead of middle class indifference, she found help in her need. Instead of a life of loneliness and isolation, which he was surely destined for as a foreigner, she found herself welcomed into a family. Wow. This is what happens when God's people walk in God's ways. This is Deuteronomy 4 stuff. Do you remember Deuteronomy 4? Flick back with me. Moses had told the people, if you choose to live out your God-given calling, the world will see the quality of the life that you share with each other. They'll see this beautiful community and they'll want to be a part of it. Verse 8 of chapter 4, Moses tells them, he tells them of a time when their neighbors will be asking, what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as the body of laws I'm setting before you today? It's it's easy to imagine that verse, that question on Ruth's lips. This welcome I've received, this generosity, generosity I've been shown, where else would I find that? I've never seen the like of it. Life in Israel is good. I'd love a bit of this kind of life myself. Maybe I could join them. Maybe I could be part of this people of God. Folks, we've seen God's call to generosity. We've seen Boaz model it as he obeys the law. And this brings us to our second point, which we'll deal with much more quickly. Jesus' life of generosity. This may never have occurred to you, but Jesus Christ is wealthy beyond your wildest imaginings. Everything that's ever been, everything that is, everything that will ever be, it's all his. When Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Colossians, he said, all things have been created through him and for him. It's all his. And yet, what do you know of Jesus when he came and lived among us? born to Galilean peasants. One of the things I try to do is imagine who Jesus would be if he was born today. Is he a mechanic, a car mechanic from Five Mile Town? Apologies for anyone from Five Mile Town. Jesus is an anybody and less than averagely wealthy. 
Jesus is poor. Do you know that? We can read about it in Luke's gospel. Whenever parents had a child, they were to bring their child to dedicate it at the temple, and you had to bring a sacrifice with you. The sacrifice you brought with you was a lamb, but the law recognized that some people were too poor to afford a lamb. So there was a provision that said, if you can't afford a lamb, bring two doves. What did Jesus' parents bring? Two doves. Jesus Christ was poor. He had no income from his work. His, his ministry was sponsored by a few wealthy women. When he was crucified and died, there was no place for him. It had to be a borrow, borrowed tomb. He was homeless. As he traveled, he said, foxes of holes and the birds of the air of nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. The wealthiest person who ever lived chose to be incredibly poor. The one who owns everything laid it all aside for those who, who had nothing. Folks, whenever we preach the gospel, we often, we often talk about how in love Jesus Christ chose poverty, and we talk about it in spiritual terms. And it's right that we do, because when he went to the cross, he chose to, to clothe himself in the rags of our sin, that he might robe us in the robes of his righteousness. Absolutely, that's what Jesus Christ did. But he chose poverty right throughout his whole life, not just in that moment. Jesus Christ chose to live a life of material poverty. This is certainly how Paul understood it. Whenever he's uh, encouraging the Christians in Corinth to contribute to a, an offering that he's making for the poor Christians in Judea, he points them to Jesus Christ as their model. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus Christ chose generosity. Faithful followers of Jesus Christ do the same. We've thought about God's call to generosity Jesus' life of generosity. And that brings us to our final matter. How might we choose generosity? Remember what we said earlier about these laws? Whenever they seem culturally remote or they talk about a, a way of life that, that isn't exactly the same as ours, most of us haven't been gleaning corn this week. If, if you have, then do literally what it says in this verse and, and you'll be doing well. Most of us haven't. So how do we do this? Well, the underlying principle, again, isn't hard to establish. I'm sure you can see it. If God wanted his people to use their valuable resources, namely their land and their crops, to bless others, then it's likely that he'll want us to use our valuable resources to do the same. What are our valuable resources? Most of us use time to generate income. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We don't use our land to generate income, but we use time. And so we sell our time to an employer to generate wealth for our household. Tell me this. Have you ever considered selling a little bit less of your time to an employer 
to allow you to use more of your time to bless people in God's name? Have you ever considered choosing work that might not maximize your wealth, but instead maximizes your effectiveness in the kingdom of God? Throughout our married life and at various stages before children, during having children, and now with uh, growing young people in our house, Claire and I have always tried to be wise about the amount of paid work that we take on. We've always tried to leave some space around the edges, some time that we can use to bless other people and invite them to find life in God. Don't, don't hear me say that we've done that well. That can be an elusive balance. But, but that's been the pursuit. Perhaps you don't have any flexibility with how you use your time. Perhaps you're in a demanding profession. It's a, an all-in corporate environment with big demands and big rewards. I can't leave space around the edges, Christoph. I'm maxed out with how I use my time. Well, in that case, maybe your question's less about time and more about your money. What about the money you earn and bring into your household? Have you ever considered adjusting your standard of living downward so that you can raise your generosity upward? The Old Testament law encourages God's people to tithe, to give one-tenth of their income so that they could be a blessing to others. It's inspiring stuff and challenging, isn't it? to take less of life's valuable resources for ourselves so that we'll have more to share with other people. It is inspiring, but it's, but it's challenging. How could we do this when our time is so precious and our money is so tight? How could we possibly find ourselves with something to give to other people? Well, you've got to hear this. Let's not do it by trying to obey a law on a page. A good part of the Bible tells us of how God's people tried to obey the law in their own strength, on their own terms, as laws on a page, and they failed. They failed miserably. We, we can't do that. We can't keep the law ourselves. But praise God, we know someone who, who did keep it perfectly, Jesus Christ, and he gives us his perfect record if only we trust him. But if we do trust in Jesus, he will and wants to help us to live the kind of life that he's teaching us here in his word. You see, it's true what we said last week. Do you remember we talked last week about, about love? We said last week, you are what you love. You end up doing the things that you want to do. We need to be the kind of people who love God and want to keep his laws because we've begun to see how beautiful he is and how beautiful his ways are. And that's precisely what God does for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you, move you to follow my decrees 
and be careful to keep my laws. Those who have trusted Jesus have the spirit of God upon them. And when this spirit's on us, he grows fruit in us and it, it, he grows it naturally. The fruit of the spirit is generosity. What do you think? You think that works? I think it does. Absolutely. Folks, all around me, I see this harvest growing in you. I see it in this congregation. God is writing his law on your hearts and I see the fruit growing in your lives. Care for the poor, God says, and you give to storehouse, you give to tear fund, you give to the World Development Appeal and so many other causes. I see it. Look out for the foreigners among you, God's word says, and you welcome the poor, the, the foreigner, into our city. We do it here in HRPC Globe, whether it's in English classes that we teach, whether it's in the cafe, whether it's as we play football or make crafts, we welcome those from other parts of the world and, and give them a home. Don't neglect the widows in your community, God's word says. So many members of our church are involved on a weekly basis, almost invisible to us, calling with our older, more vulnerable members, showing them God's love and care. Don't forget the fatherless, God's word says. And just the last week or two, you've been filling your, your envelopes for the Presbyterian Children's Society, and you'll give to bless children that way. I might encourage you to know of a, a wee ministry that's starting just now. Uh, just last month in September, Friday Connect in Bangor started to meet on our premises. That's a support group for those involved in fostering and care uh, for, for vulnerable children, fostering and adoption, a home for good ministry. Folks, you're doing it. And I love to see it. And I encourage you, don't, don't think of that. Don't think of life with God as some sort of dichotomy there there are the spiritual things that we do and then these practical things these and this is how we live to please God we worship him we read his word and we pray to him and we help children and the poor and we do it all for his name and for his glory folks every time we take a little bit less for ourselves so that we can give a little bit more to another. Every time we choose, gener or choose generosity, we choose to walk in God's ways and we choose life. Let's pray.